animal lovers, and welcome to another episode of Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem, where each month we discuss and bring on experts to spread the word about a different facet of the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem, one of the largest nearly intact temperate zone ecosystems on Earth. This podcast is sponsored by the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary in Red Lodge, Montana. The Wildlife Sanctuary is a nonprofit that takes in and cares for non-releasable Yellowstone wildlife and gives them a place to live and uses that opportunity to educate the public on these species, like we are doing here on this episode. And your hosts are myself, Eden Wandra, and Jess Smallwood. On our last episode, we talked to Marion Kirst, and if you haven't got the chance to listen to the episode yet, I highly recommend it. She is just so passionate and excited about what she does and dives into the coolest thing about about moths. Um, Anyway, she is the leader of the Montana Moth Project in this part of the state, which is a flagship program of the Northern Rockies Research and Educational Services nonprofit. We were so impressed by what this small research organization was doing that we wanted to dive into it more this episode. Maybe many of you, even in the science field, haven't heard of them before, but I'm telling you, you should, and we are here to tell you why. They are cranking out an impressive amount of research on interesting, rarely explored topics, and producing an incredible amount of work for their size. Today, we're proud to be bringing on the founder and the executive director of the Northern Rockies Research and Educational Services, Matt Seidensticker. So Matt, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are so excited to have you. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I sure, I sure appreciate you guys. Um, you know, getting the getting the message out for us and um, letting us talk a little bit about what we do. Absolutely, of course, we are happy to do that. That's what we love to do. Uh, I wanted to start off a little bit with some some history of the foundation itself. Like, when did it begin? Where did you get the initial idea for it? Um, was it hard to start a, a science based nonprofit and find the funding for that type of thing? Yeah. So you know, it it basically started the the whole concept of it. It, it kind of started with DNA and bird poop. <laughs> Great start. That's how it was. So I, I was working with uh, the MPG Ranch, which we mm-hmm. can talk about a bit more in depth later. Um, I was working with their bird crew on a project. We were trying to determine what nocturnal insectivores were eating. So things like common poor wills, nighthawks, um, bats, and mm-hmm. flammulated owls. And so we got turned on to this uh, technique called DNA barcoding. And so essentially you can amplify the DNA in bird poop. So like the insect DNA in bird poop and and compare it to a reference database and find out what they're eating. And so early on though, we discovered that, you know, your results of this barcoding stuff is usually only as good as the reference databases that you compare the sequences to. You know, we were working with the the barcode of life database, which is um, out of Canada. And it's it's probably the largest DNA barcode database in the world. Mm -hmm. But we discovered that, geez, you know, even with all the millions of sequences they had and everything that the taxonomic coverage of insects was really pretty like low. Like it wasn't like, I mean, you can imagine what there's like a million described insects in the world or whatever. And so it was pretty, pretty low. So we kind of got the idea. We were like, okay, well, why don't we just create our own like database? Um, We just started in earnest sort of collecting nocturnal insects Mm -hmm. and 
insects in general um, to create our own kind of local library. And through that, we discovered in our first year, this was back in like 2017, I believe, we started doing that. And in the first year, we barcoded something like 325 moth species or something. Oh, wow. You know, it was pretty low effort, you know. I mean, we were doing, you know, like three or four sites like once a month. And so after that, the light just kind of went on. We were just kind of, geez, you know, what's going on with <laughs> moth research in Montana? You know, is there anybody doing it? What's going on with it? Um, mm mm-hmm. And we, we soon discovered that, you know, besides there's a, a fellow, Robert Martin, um, in Helena, who's been photographing moths for like 20 years, but there really wasn't any like research oriented stuff going on. So the light bulb just kind of went off and we're like, geez, we saw a real opportunity here. Um, to do, you know, to do moth research. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the ranch, I had kind of, you know, there was some talk that maybe, you know, I was just a seasonal at the time. And so they were kind of like, well, you know, the person I was under, the supervisor, they kind of wanted to, you know, push him to hire me, but the ranch is sort of like burgeon beyond what they had envisioned mm-hmm. with staff. And so then I kind of just approached them. And I was like, well, what if maybe, I mean, is there a possibility if I started a nonprofit that I could get some contract work to continue the moth research here? And... And then from there, it just kind of snowballed Okay. into wow. into what it is now. Yeah. Okay. So do you mostly only focus on, on moths then? Yeah. For the most part, that's our primary focus. Um, and as we start talking about some of the more MPG related stuff, I, I do, I've got a couple other projects that are non-moth related on the ranch as well. Such yeah. as? So we do a biennial... Um, insect abundance and biomass monitoring project. So we have 18 sites on the ranch that we use um, like malaise traps, pitfall traps, um, and pan traps at each of these sites. And then we we basically, we basically, we do it uh, for one week per month from May through August. And we just, we collect all the insects at that site. And then I, I have a partnership with the Missoula Insectarium. Oh, cool. Butterfly House here mm-hmm. in Missoula. And they, they are the ones that um, do all the like, so they count the insects to order for each sample. And then they also weigh the biomass of each sample. You guys have probably heard of the whole thing about the insect apocalypse and all this stuff about insects declining yes. and things like that. Yeah. So this is just a way, it's a way to just sort of like maybe use this conservation property as kind of a bellwether for, you know, just to see if we can detect any, you know, if things are declining on this ranch, right? Yeah. For example, after 10 years, then maybe, maybe it's sort of a bellwether to say, okay, maybe we need to do some more research, you know, regionally or outside to see what the status of, of insects are. And, and then just to provide some information for the ranch in, in terms of what occurs there and, and what abundance mm-hmm. and things like that to tie into some of their other research. And then the other thing is, is we we discovered with the barcoding and the diet stuff that crane flies, it turns out that crane flies were like a really key um, mm-hmm. and frequently consumed prey of all the insectivores, in particular some mm-hmm. of the birds, so the nighthawks and the poor whales. And so, you know, we did, there was virtually nothing known about, like we wow. had no idea what was going on with crane flies yeah. on the ramp. And we were able to hook up with a, a, a crane fly expert, Dr. John Gelhouse from Drexel University that we use to help us identify some of these um, specimens. And so he kind of, uh, you know, told us, well, geez, you know, a lot of these terrestrial crane flies, like 
there's like nothing known about like the larval stages or where they develop. And, you know, we have some idea and stuff. And so last year we started a project just kind of, and Dr. Gillows came out with some of his colleagues and we, we just started uh, digging around in the soil where, you know, like for example, just, just a basic, like, where do we find these things? Where mm-hmm. are they developing? Um, what's their phenology? You know, <laughs> when are they developing and when the adults are emerging, which is cool because we found, I think, probably about 15 at least different uh, larval types that are presumably different species of crane flies. And they were all, according to Dr. Gilhouse, they're all undescribed. So it will sort of be a neat, um, I guess, a, a neat way to contribute to the knowledge of crane flies that we'll be able to start describing these, yeah. these crane flies now. And so hopefully that'll help, you know, future researchers. And, and we're particularly interested in knowing like, okay, why, you know, why are these things turning up in the diet? Um, and so once we get that phenology, we'll be able to, you know, maybe understand some of the natural history of the adults then mm-hmm. and, and sort of, you know, match that up with maybe some of the behaviors of the birds and, and maybe help explain, you know, why, why are these things taking these crane flies? Um, so it's pretty cool. Um, wow. Pretty cool there. But those are my two kind of non-moth projects. Okay, so it's kind of crazy that there's some species out there like chimpanzees where we have 40 years of specific data on just one individual and what they're doing every day, all day. And then there's other species that we don't even know exist yet. And you're just starting some of this basic basic data collection on them. And that it's not just a, a random species. It's actually one that's so vital for so many other species' livelihood. That we didn't even know about. Yeah, we didn't even... Yeah. yeah. That's crazy to me. Yeah. Um, well, I think we should... We, we got excited and dove into it, but back up a little bit um, and explain to everyone about the MPG ranch a little bit. So they are this incredible research hub that's focused on conservation work. It's out in the western part of Montana, about 45 minutes from south of Missoula. And if you haven't heard of them and you are into the natural sciences, I highly recommend checking them out. Um, They do a lot of different educational programs. They do training there. They have a lot of volunteer opportunities that you can get involved with. Or if you just want to check out the research they're doing and learn from their resources, their website is a is an amazing resource. So we will link their website in our, our show notes for people to check out. So I highly recommend that. But can you can you explain maybe a little bit more? I mean, you've been working there, what they are doing out there, all the incredible work they're doing, and what your your partnership is like with them. You bet. Yeah. So, like you mentioned, you know, it's a it's about a fourteen thousand acre wow. um, property at this point, um, and it's it's really set up as sort of a kind of a a living laboratory, if you will, mm. or, or a field station. And so they they support research on everything from you know the soil microbes on up to like the big game uh, that occurs on the ranch. And and so it was an old cattle ranch for a lot of years and so a lot of their focus is on restoration so they've done you know a ton of stuff uh, um, with like plantings and and getting rid of noxious weeds and trying to bring back a lot of the native vegetation and stuff but along with that it's you know they they study like i said everything from the soil microbes to the big game Um, and it really helps you know there's there's a ton of not just me but there's other nonprofits that they 
they support to do work on the ranch, um, you know, with, with raptors and songbirds. Um, and so it's, it's really, really impressive. And, you know, kudos to them because, you know, in my experience, I, I think this is, I'm a little over two decades now of working in, you know, wildlife research. And, and it's really, it's really private individuals, you know, that in, in places like MPG Ranch that, that, fund a lot of private research is that's that's really cool you know because it, it's hard you know sometimes for especially grassroots um small nonprofits like ours to you know to really break into any sort of like agency funding or right uh, mm-hmm. you know government funding things like that because yeah. you know you've got the universities and all this stuff so it's pretty amazing what they do it's 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 a uh, it's awesome, yeah. Yeah, it, re- it really is. I've been so impressed by them. Do you know some examples of the way ways that their conservation work or the, all this amount of research that's come out of there has been able to make an impact on on management decisions or in the conservation field? Yeah, I would say the, you know the big one is with the. Um the lead and eagles. Oh, awesome. Yeah, and so yeah. they're, um, you know, they have partnered with Raptor View Research Institute, uh, which is a local raptor research-oriented nonprofit here in Missoula. And Raptor View had been doing a lot of uh, blood lead testing with eagles on some of their migration sites. And so they partnered with the ranch a number of years ago to start looking at um, blood lead levels of eagles in the Bitterroot Valley during the winter and stuff. And so like this time of year into the winter and and that's really, um, and then there's a, a fellow, Mike McTee, that is uh, on the staff of the ranch. And he actually just published a book called Wilted Wings. Oh, neat. It <laughs> is all about his journey as a hunter. And he's been like the, just a tireless advocate of getting that message out there about you know switching to copper bullets and and how mm-hmm. these eagles are you know going on these um offal piles and 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 being leaded through that and stuff like that right. and so they've had a major impact at least in terms of their messaging and outreach um I, i'm not sure it's hard to know what sort of impact you know yeah. it's hard to know like okay or how many people are switching to copper bullets or whatever mm-hmm. but they've definitely had a um, an impact in terms of putting the research out there that's pretty cut and dry yeah that i mean i think their research found that like and i don't want to say the wrong percentage but let's say it was a lot it was like like 90 or more yeah, yeah. Of these eagles had elevated blood lead levels mm-hmm. oh yeah that they, that they were capturing so it's a huge problem and they've done a, a fantastic job of um you know even they just actually mike and um, philip ramsey who's the general manager of the ranch they actually just published a paper too on looking at the ballistics mm-hmm. of the different you know copper versus lead and stuff and they're really putting all the information and research they can out there um and i, I think it's having an impact i mean it's you, you would hope anyway. Incredible, yeah. Oh, yeah. We all would hope. We're we're big time into the lead, like the whole lead conversation and just running down rabbit hole after rabbit hole on this. I'm going to jump in here real quick and say, if you're interested on the effects of lead bullets on wildlife or the other benefits of non-lead ammunition, stay tuned for one of our upcoming episodes where we're going to discuss this with a couple hunters. Anyway, back to you. <laughs> 
Um, I I actually had a question if we if we jump back to the DNA barcoding, um, and it's a real simple basic question. Can that only be used for like animal vertebrate invertebrate DNA, or can you also access like plants, fruits, you know, different minerals and stuff like that? Absolutely, it's commonly used for plants. Um, so you can. So there's two ways you can do it. So the, the DNA barcoding itself is where you would take like a, like if you had a plant you didn't know, let's say what it was, um, you could actually take a sample of the plant tissue or whatever, and then send that in and they could sequence that and then maybe tell you what species it was. Awesome. The stuff that we're using is called meta barcoding. And so it's basically when you have like a pooled sample. So like the, the bird poop has a, a bunch of different mm. insect DNA, mm. for example, and they're able to amplify that DNA, but it works well. And we can, we can talk about it more, a part of my research on the ranch as well. And Marion may have hit on it that we did some of this in the priors was using this, this, uh, meta barcoding for pollen. So you right. can, you can essentially like swab moths, um, and they can tell you, you know, based off of a mixed sample of different pollen grains, yeah, the different plant taxa, you know, that you're finding, which it, it's really, really awesome. You know, the the gene regions obviously are different, but mm-hmm. it's it's yeah, you can use this barcoding for for both plants and animals, um, which is really really cool. Okay, I'm amazed that that's not done more. Or, and maybe we're just not hearing about it, mm-hmm. um, but like even there's so many applications, everything from, you know, like, like if you, if you were trying to figure out for like a zoological collection or something like that, what an appropriate species diet would be, why not, why not just go out, like collect some from that species, run this kind of testing and be like, all right, this is what they ate. Is this is this being done more often and it's just not flashy and sexy to talk about or you know the you know, barcoding is pretty I mean I guess you could say it's pretty recent I mean it, it was the early 2000s when it was sort of I think came in um, was was really developed in a reliable manner and then in the last 15 years yeah it if you search the journals and things there's a lot of barcoding stuff going on um and it's it's becoming more and more um there one of the things is it's not you know there's different it's getting more standardized now i think Mm. early on it was like you know there was different sequencing machines and then there was some you know are is this co1 gene which is for animals really you know reliable and can we use others and stuff it's still evolving but it's gotten to the point now where it's if you search the literature, there's a lot of this stuff going on, um, especially with like the diet side of things. Um, mm-hmm. The the pollen stuff, I you know I I feel like it's only kind of burgeoned maybe in the last like I don't know five to eight years maybe mm-hmm. that more and more people are starting to to use this for that. Um, and, and really with moths, you know, moths are sort of this overlooked. They've sort of been overlooked as pollinators. You know, I, yeah. I think, you know, historically we knew that some of these larger moths, like like sphinx moths, and um, in particular, you know, were because they're visible and we could see them. And sometimes they're out during the day, and so we kind of we kind of knew that. Um, but for more of these nocturnal species, it really 
It really hasn't been in the last the last five years, I would say, that it's, you know, really kind of like, hey, we need to figure out what these things are doing. And then this, yeah. the DNA, you know, technology made it just so much easier now because you can imagine, I mean, how do you, these things are flying around at night, you know, how do you really know what's going on? Um, and so it, 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 it's really, it's pretty recent, but it's, it's more and more you see it being used. Um, and even this eDNA stuff now too, where people are actually basically like go out to like a flower mm -hmm. and like collect the petals or whatever. And then apparently, you know, some people have good success, like a bee will actually leave behind its DNA on this petal. <laughs> you can like, and I know the BLM doing some work on this and there's been some studies in Europe that have shown that you can actually tell what insect has been on that flower just by the trace DNA wow. that it leaves behind, you know? And, and and those things are, those kind of techniques are really still kind of evolving, mm. but it's, mm -hmm. I've read some papers that have had some pretty good results, you know? Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. Oh my God, mind blowing. MPG ah. Ranch has actually used, um, so they have a, a mountain lion project that's been going on for a number of years, and they've actually employed this eDNA where they they go out into the winter and they collect like the the snow, uh, like from the paw prints. Mm. And they've had some success in being able to tell like individual like wow. mountain lions and stuff from wow. what, just their paw prints and yeah. the eDNA they keep behind. So, that's really impressive. It's it's pretty amazing what they're doing these days um, yeah. with the DNA for sure. What a time to be alive! Yeah, that would have made the research that I did in my field work a lot easier because we were searching around for fecal samples when we could have just been sampling tracks or nests or something like that. Yeah. Wow. Or literally anything. Yeah. yeah. Give them a post to brush up against. Be like, that's good. Thanks. Yep. Thanks. Let me get my little swab. Oh, that's impressive. Right. You know. It, I think a limiting factor, I mean, the cost, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's pretty affordable, you mm -hmm. know, um, and, and versus like alternative methods in a lot of cases, it, it can provide a, a lot higher resolution. But I, I still think that maybe there's a little bit of a, a cost thing, you know, because it, it does cost some money, you know, mm -hmm. but it's for, for us in terms of like the nocturnal insectivores, it's. You know, traditionally they would dissect pellets and look for like insect parts left behind and stuff. Right. And, you know, maybe you could get to like, like the ordinal level, you know, of the, or the orders of st what what's been you know, been eaten. Sure. But with like the soft body prey and stuff, like if this thing's eating mosquitoes or flies, you know, you're not going to necessarily find that in in the poop. And so that's where this DNA has really opened up. A, okay. Mm -hmm. a, a window and I often say it's you know this DNA too it's not the end-all be-all right so there's still a lot of you know there can be misidentifications and there can be a lot of stuff that goes on behind that so it's not like this foolproof method but mm -hmm. it, it really is an awesome way to co corroborate you know what you su su suspect or predict or um you know it just it just adds an extra layer sure. um, of inference I think it's definitely a fuller picture yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. For mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. Ugh. Oh my God. <laughs> That's just the coolest thing. <laughs> so, Marion said specifically what she's looking at is uh, she's doing a lot of like abundance and diversity collection. 
But it sounds like what you're doing at MPG is looking more at the other species that are interacting with moss, like their predators, as well as what plants they're, they're interacting with as well, pollinating or eating. What have you been finding about predator relationships with, with moths from your studies in MPG and like the implications it has for moths? So that's, yeah, that's a good, uh, good question. So we actually, um, a couple of years ago, I think it was maybe last year or whatever, we published a paper looking at just all the, the, the suite of nocturnal insectivores that we um, looked at. So it was common poor whales, nighthawks, uh, about seven, seven species of bats, I think, and then flammulated owls. And what, what the data sort of showed was is that because of this sort of evolutionary, um, I guess you could call it struggle or, or, or back and forth between bats and moths, right? So, so most of the like noctuid moths, which is a family of moths, um, you know, some tiger moths, they actually have hearing capabilities. So they have tympana on their bodies that can actually hear bat echolocation. Mm, and so oh. it's, it's been a pretty established thing that there's, there's this sort of back and forth struggle between you know bats and moths and so our our data showed that and we postulated that this struggle sort of opens up a niche space for some of the nocturnal birds and so these nocturnal birds like the nighthawks and the poor whales are, are they're, they're sort of like sit and wait predators so like the poor whale will kind of just sit there on the ground and then use visual clues to kind of sally up from the ground uh-huh. and catch a moth. And so they're not necessarily using like a, you know, any sort of sound or anything like that. And they're pretty silent flyers and then things like that. And so the bats were eating some moths, but we found that like the poor whales and the nighthawks were eating far more um, noctuid moths. So the eared moths versus the bats. And so mm-hmm. this, we sort of postulated that this struggle between the, the bats and the moths kind of opened up this niche space in terms of their foraging mode for these nighthawks and, and poor whales to then be able to eat a lot more noctuid moths and stuff. And it, it was um, moths, you know, besides the crane flies, moths were probably the most prevalent prey in the, in the nighthawks and the bats. And of course, flyleted owls are sort of known as moth specialists, mm-hmm. and they're just, they're a tiny little forest moth or a forest owl. Um, <laughs> the cutest I, thing yeah. I have seen in a very long time. Very adorable. Yeah. <laughs> with their with their big dark eyes and that stumpy little tail and all of that, just just adorable. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yeah. We really that cool. was another rabbit hole we went down in getting ready. In getting ready was like, what look at this thing. Look at this thing. Yeah. Do they do they live around? Do they live in Montana? Yeah, actually what? they do. And so I I actually did my master's work on flammulated owls here in the Missoula area, and they're really um, you know back when we were doing owl research, and it's, it's kind of funny, you know, the the state considers them a sensitive species because they were they're um, sort of tied to this kind of open ponderosa pine savanna habitat. Mm-hmm. So they really like an open forest with big trees yeah. and, and, and not much understory. Mm-hmm. And so the, because that habitat type was sort of like, you know, going away, mm-hmm. or not, we, you know, the, the Avian Science Center did a bunch of surveys about 10, 15 years ago, and they found them a lot west. They seem to be restricted to west of the divide. Okay. Hmm. Um, so they did some surveys in the island ranges, you know, in the, in the eastern part of the state, and they didn't detect any, but 
they're they're really common and they do breed oh, um, in Montana. I, I I would suspect you know they're they're more common than we think. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're challenging just, to find, aren't they? Like they are. They are. They're really they're highly nocturnal. Um, and so you know you don't even like on a summer night you know you're not going to hear them calling until like. 10, 30, 11 mm. o'clock at night. Yeah, right. And, and, and their nests, they're super challenging to find their nests. Um, they're very, very small. They're secretive. And because of their nocturnal habits, it's, I mean, I think in my master's work, we only, I think we had 12 territories and we only ended up finding like four nests. Oh boy. Because it was just like, you had to go out there at night and like watch you know, for them flying in and out of cavities. And one of the nests we found, their cavity was like 80 feet in the air. Ah, oh my God. The <laughs> thing is they nest yeah. pretty hot up. They're, they're a small owl that likes a large cavity. Mm-hmm. So like made by like a pileated woodpecker or things like that. And they nest like on average, probably about 40 feet in the air. Mm-hmm. And so it makes it really difficult to find them. They like a place with a view. Yeah, they do. Yeah. <laughs> Roomy home. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so they've become they're they're called the moth specialists because that's mostly what they eat. That's yeah. like their main food source. Okay. Yeah, they do. It's predominantly I think ours we didn't have a ton of samples, but it was like, you know, sixty percent or something of what they ate was moths. I mean they do eat like some beetles and they'll eat a spider and things like that, but predominantly, you know, the majority of their diet is moths. <laughs> Okay, but can we also talk about the poor wills and the nighthawks mm-hmm. and stuff like that? So, is it true that poor wills will actually hibernate? So it's not technically hibernation. So it's called torpor. Right. Okay. And right. Yeah. So they'll they'll go into a state of torpor. Um, wow. It's you know in the insect world, I guess you could call it like diapause, right? So it's kind of mm-hmm. the equivalent of that. So they'll just lower their metabolic rates to a point where it's like. They're just kind of sleeping, mm-hmm. um, you know, more or less. Um, and they, they'll do that, I think, on their wintering grounds and stuff. We, we've encountered some here, like, early in the spring where it's, like, on a cold, like, if we get some weather or something, they're, it seems like they're able to, you know, to, to kind of do that on demand. <laughs> yeah. Of, you can literally walk up to them and just pick them up. Whoa. Just touch them. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty, it's pretty wild. Um, and there, you know, Kate Stone. Um, if you guys ever wanted to learn more about the poor wills and the nighthawks, Kate Stone on MPG Ranch. She's, she'd be the one to talk to. She's gotcha. been researching okay. them since um, 2015, and they've, they've, they got a lot of great stuff on them. Um, you know, one of the cool things about the poor wills is they actually come back year after year to the same like territories. Hmm. And she's had some unbelievable recaptures of like the same bird, like coming back to the same territory for like five, six, seven years. Um, Really cool things, you know, and now they're starting to put these nano tags, they call on them, that they're able to track them through these notice towers. And it's just really cool stuff, a really really cool bird. Um, You know, we hear them in Marion, I I hear them all over the state when I'm out doing the moss stuff. You know, so we've heard them in the priors and I've heard them in the little belts in the muscle shell area. And so they're they're I think they're pretty common, but a little understudied bird. I don't think we know a lot about them. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, and because yeah. I know they've got some amazing camouflage and they definitely have very different bird behavior. Right. If they spend most of the time on the ground. Um, they do. Yeah. But they're but they're fully flighted and can 
obviously yep. migrate and stuff like that. Um, very yeah. different. It's amazing. And they really rely on that camouflage. When we were put, you, you'd be our radio transmitters, I'll say, mm, on the, you know, yeah. on them, and we'd be able to track them back to their roost or whatever. And they, you know, they'll hang really, really tight in terms of like, I mean, you have to get within like feet of them sometimes before they'll actually, you know, flush or do that. So they really cryptic birds, super, super cool. Yeah. Um, and, and pretty common on MPG ranch. Mm-hmm. I'd love to see one. Are there any other research projects we haven't touched on that you're really excited about that are happening at MPG Ranch right now, like that have happened this summer that you're gearing up for? Yeah, so I, you know, maybe we can just touch on, I know we, we you guys want to talk maybe a little bit about the climate change angle and things like that. Yeah. So mm-hmm. One of the projects I have on MPG Ranch is, is a, it's a long-term monitoring project of moth uh, abundance and diversity. And our main goal is to look at, to track that diversity and abundance in relation to the changing climate. And so I have four, I have four different sites on MPG and I, we run one light trap at each site on a weekly basis. So one night per week from April through October. Mm-hmm. And we we basically, um, you know, we live trap the moths. And so unless it, it gets to be like in the summer where it's like, this crazy like abundance and we so generally what we do is we we don't use any killing fluid but we'll you know i set the, the light traps out in the in the afternoon and they're on light switches so they mm-hmm. come on automatically and then you know like four in the morning we visit the traps and then we'll sometimes we have to get into tents or whatever so we don't lose a moth or yeah. whatever. and yeah. then we you know i do put them in like a uh, like a, a Tupperware with just a little bit of athelastic, just knock them out real quick. Mm-hmm. And then we photograph each specimen and that's where we get our, our tallies and things like that from. But the, the main goal is to look at, you know, track that abundance over time in, in terms of, you know, looking at correlations with a changing climate. And, you know, we're only in our second full year of doing that. Um, yeah. But I, I just plotted like the total abundance of all the four sites combined and, you know, like in 2021, we definitely saw this, like, okay, there was a peak in June, there was a peak at the end of July, and then there was a peak at the end of August. But this year, so we, in 2021, we, we photo documented like 12,500 moths or something through May through wow. uh, <laughs> uh, October. Uh-huh. This year, we had like the low, it was a cool, wet spring, right? Mm-hmm. And so we had our lowest, or way lower abundance through the end of about the middle of July compared mm-hmm. to 2021. But then, as you guys probably know, it was like all of a sudden we just get slammed with these heat waves. Yeah. And so the the two week span from the last week of July to the first week of August, we documented 200 moths more than we documented the entire oh season of 2021. What? It was just, it was, it was unbelievable, Insane. you know, Whoa. and it was just like this, and it was, be, you know, wow. cold-blooded, right? And so you yeah. can, you know, you, you'll see these peaks and valleys depending on, you know, the, the weather, right? And yeah. that's why we try to do them weekly, so maybe we can tease out some of those, you know, those patterns later on by looking at the weather. Oh, yeah. you know, if we mm-hmm. put it on a Monday night and the weather was rainy, maybe, you know, obviously we're not going to get as many. As right. The, so that's why we do it so frequently, but... You know, the overnight temperatures were, I mean, they were still like, you know, in the 70s, 
you know. Yeah, um, yeah. It, you know, it, it was crazy like one night. Yeah. Me and Moz were just able to, like, just be active and active throughout the whole night. And, <clears> and it remained pretty elevated through October, really, mm-hmm. with the temperatures. Uh, we, you know, we saw a bigger spike. Um, you know, and we normally see, and Mary might have talked about this, you see, like, different species composition as the year goes on. So, like, right. there's spring flying moths and there's summer mm-hmm. flying moths fall. So you always kind of get these these peaks and valleys, uh-huh. you know, to where the spring moths are really abundant, and then maybe there's a little lag before the summer moths kind of fly. And then so you, you sort of see that. But so, you know, obviously we don't have the longitudinal data right now after two years to know whether – you know, is this just a natural normal population fluctuation right. or is it, but with, you know, what's supposed to be predicted in the models to happen, especially for Western Montana, where they are kind of predicting this, you know, where, where we may get this, this more, this cooler, wetter springs, right? Where we're yeah. getting more precipitation, but kind of all at once. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden we're getting these flash droughts and these heat waves in the summer. It'll be interesting to see if that pattern kind of holds from what we saw this year, you know, to where it's like a little lower abundance in the spring yeah. and all of a sudden it just goes nuts. Yeah. Um, but there's also, you know, they also talk about more climate variability too. So, you know, are we going to see just like no pattern where it's just crazy where yeah. it's like, you know, one year we have a really dry spring and a dry summer and the next year we have a dry spring but a wet summer and we're trying to look at that in the long term how does that affect the moths you know um, Mm -hmm. in terms of abundance and and diversity and things like that Um, yeah because when they're so sensitive to weather if it is so variable like that then it's hitting all sorts of different species of moss rather than it just always, you know, being a really heavy spring. Then it's just hitting the spring species that come out more. Mm-hmm. But if you have it all over the place, that's hard for any species to adapt to. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and, and part of that, too, is we're, you know, we're hoping to maybe, you know, we keep our eye out for like new things maybe that we haven't documented before. So maybe eventually like. You know, people always talk about range expansions, right? So, like, you know, things expanding north as the climate warms and stuff. And so, you know, sort of a secondary objective of the project is just kind of to monitor for that. You know, are we seeing, like, more and more, like, presumably southern species, you know, kind of showing up more and more in the traps? Mm -hmm. Or We haven't seen a ton of that. Um, obviously it's only been two years and we're, we're just kind of establishing that baseline, but mm-hmm. you know, maybe eventually after 10 years or something, yeah. you know, maybe we'll see, I, I, I don't know, but so that, that's one of my main projects with the moths on the ranch is just doing that. And then we've also done going back to the barcoding thing. Yeah. So we did a little pilot project in 2020, 2020, where we just were kind of trying to develop some methods of like you know, how do we, you know, swab these moths and stuff like that and, and, you know, to get this pollen data. And so it turned out pretty successfully. And so last year, what we did was, is we collected moths and diurnal insects in like, I think it was six or seven of the lower elevation uh, restoration areas on the ranch. Mm -hmm. With the idea, we just wanted to know that we wanted to reveal the nocturnal and diurnal pollination networks like how are like what's going on there we wanted to kind of you know because people talk about the bees and stuff but we're only talking about one 
side of these pollination networks, right? I mean, there's a yeah. lot of other things out yeah. there that are doing stuff, whether it's bees or, or whether it's beetles or flies or the moths. Um, mm-hmm. So we just kind of wanted to know there, you know, the MPG had a, a bee project going on for like six years where they did some pretty intensive sampling and stuff. And one of the things that kind of shook out of that was, is that they found that, you know, the native bee diversity was much lower in these kind of restoration areas that, mm-hmm. that hadn't, you know, had these native plants and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so we were just curious, like, okay, well, we just kind of wanted to know, like, how do how do the moths then, you know, given that the moths are like way more diverse in terms of their yeah. species and things like that, like mm-hmm. how, how much then are they maybe picking up the slack, if yeah. you will? Yeah. And, just the different shifts, like night shift, day shift. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly, and, and there's been some data to indicate that there's a lot of, um, there is some redundancy in these systems. So there's been some meta-analysis done that showed that like, you know, the bees are pollinating these plants, but then the moths come out at night and pollinate or, you know, interact mm-hmm. with the same plants. And then well, there's good. been other studies that have shown that they're pollinating completely different plants. And that there's, you know, some moths, because the moths are just going after the nectar, right? So they, mm-hmm. you know, plants that maybe don't have like a, a nectar source per se, the moths probably aren't, you know, interacting with them, whereas the bees are collecting the pollen. So maybe they go to mm-hmm. them. And so there's, we just wanted to understand, you know, what's the interactions of yeah. these, uh, you know, what's the whole system look like in these restoration right. areas? Um, and, you know, we just actually, so we collected 500 and, 25 i believe insects total and 300 of them were moths and then there was 500 or 225 that were non-moths so though i think there was like 55 taxa of bees and wasps that we collected and then there was i think and i just got this data back last <laughs> the middle of last summer and i we haven't really dived into it i think there was like four or 11 species of flies maybe like eight or so species of beetles um, that we collected in, mm-hmm. in total um, and, and in a really localized area. So what we do is we'd have a light sheet and we'd collect the moths from the light sheet. And we do that to prevent like uh, contamination. So if we mm-hmm. were to collect the moths out of a light trap, for, for example, uh-huh. moths are in there and they're bumping into each other yeah. and all that, oh, yeah. you know, we might get okay. that cross contamination. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we collect them by hand off a light sheet in separate jars and all that, you know, to keep mm-hmm. it as separate as we can. Right. And then we would walk sort of haphazardly in a 75 meter radius around the light sheet location during the day. Mm-hmm. And we would just, we would collect anything that we saw like on a flower. So not if it was flying around or mm-hmm. anything, but these insects, so if we saw a beetle or Any a butterfly, okay. or, yeah. we, would, we would collect them off the flowers, presumably because they're, you know, they were either nectarine or collecting pollen or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, we found just off the top of my head if i can remember i think we found something like 190 species of plant or some somewhere in there it's like 100 let's say over 150 different plant taxa among all of the the samples representing like 47 genre and like 29 plant families <laughs> jesus on, on, yeah. you know, this, this is across all laws and everything and so yeah things are interacting with a, a lot of stuff um, you know in the pilot project that i did in 2020 was just on moths and i think in that one we found like 110 different plant taxa you know presumably species mm-hmm. or whatever on mm-hmm. 
about 75 species of moths. And, and, and I think, you know, some moths had multiple pollen on them, so upwards right. of like five or six different types of plant pollen on them. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and granted, some of them were grasses, so that, that hmm. probably not a pollination interaction, but maybe where they were resting or... Hmm you know things like that or you know think but but one of the cool things we found is we actually found orchid pollen um it's a uh, the alaska rain orchid i think uh-huh. it's, it's found in pg ranch it's pretty common but we found that pollen on a, the proboscis of a geometric moth which is pretty strong indication yeah. that, that thing is probably nectaring yeah on that orchid um so that that's pretty cool. cool so the and, and i don't know if marion talked about our stuff in uh, the priors so we did some of this meta barcoding yeah she did mm-hmm. she mentioned how you found the uh one moth was specifically pollinating with that that rare species of plant mm-hmm. yeah. but, but also within that tiny little like that micro oh, ecosystem yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and we, and, you know, we, I think we found over a hundred different plant taxa in total there too. You know, which is which is pretty cool. And it, we haven't really dived into that data super deep yet either. Um, so again, going back to the whole like plant libraries are really kind of lacking the taxonomic coverage. Mm-hmm. You know, to have reliable stuff because what one of the things we were seeing is is like the lab does do like some preliminary bioinformatics for us so they'll do like a you know once they get the sequences they'll compare it to the bold database that they have but you know we were starting to see stuff even in my research here and then it also at, at uh, the priors you know we were getting pretty strong detections of it and it would come back for like plants that weren't even like necessarily found in montana right you know it's so so we're not sure, you know, we're, we're working with MPGs, bioinformatics specialists, uh, and mm-hmm. we can create like these custom databases that have more taxonomic coverage. Yeah. So our first thought was, is, oh, geez, well, are these things moving around? Right, are they like, traveling that right, far? Right, that far? <laughs> yeah, I mean, because there have been studies, Crazy. I think, in China that showed that, you know, these moths are really furry, right? And so that pollen's sticky and it'll stay in, you know, their on their body for a long time. And so maybe you know, they had shown that there was long distance transport of uh, you know pollen for like over like kilom- like hundreds of kilometers, right? That these moths were transporting this. And so one of our thoughts was, oh my God, what we first need to know, are these just misidentifications? Right. right? Because, yeah. because the, the database we compared it to didn't have like the taxonomic coverage, right? And so the way that the, the algorithm works is is it basically if you have a sequence and you feed it into these databases it, it more or less picks like the first like most similar sequence mm-hmm. and that'll be kind of your hit right so it could just be a misidentification um and we need to find out more but once we find that that out if we find that these things hold up mm-hmm that's a big deal yeah you know maybe like like with the the prior stuff like we were getting plants that are found in like the upper midwest right yeah you know are those misidentifications (laughs) but if it's told up to be true then well geez maybe that then we get to the whole isotope thing and we don't need to go up Mm. onto that (laughs) you know stable isotopes maybe to like see if you can determine the natal origin of the moth right and then that matched up to where those plants occur, 
then you're kind of thinking, oh my God, these things, maybe they traveled that far. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? That would just um, be so cool. It's like they're like they're collecting stickers from like all these little places that they've been. I've got this one from my hometown. I've got this one from this place I went over here. Like, and then we can look at me go. Yeah. Used to track their travel, which could help them for adapting to climate change too if they have this ability to travel a lot further than we realized mm-hmm. absolutely absolutely yeah. and promoting like you know genetic diversity in plants yeah too, absolutely right? yeah like, no kidding if there's populations that they're traveling to they're carrying that genetic dna you know far distances and so it it, it would really you know maybe per, make it more resilient as a whole mm-hmm. uh, yeah so anyway, cool stuff. We don't, we Very don't know cool. that. <laughs> oh, so much cool stuff. <laughs> it's pretty fascinating. And we're, you know, we're hoping that we continue to do more and more of that stuff. And I'll, like I said, we haven't dived into the heavy duty statistics yet for the mm-hmm. MPG work, but mm-hmm. the results were great, you know, and, and, and the success rate. So we, out of the 525 samples, I mean, we were batting like 93% success. So only like like 20, 25 of them, we didn't detect anything. And that could just be that there wasn't any pollen on those Mm -hmm. things, Mm -hmm. Um, if they were moths or whatever. And Mm so, so you really get, I I feel like it's really, you get a lot of bang for your buck. I mean, 93% Mm -hmm. success on the sequencing is really good. It's very Um, good. No big deal. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like millions of sequences and like, oh my God, it's, yeah. Of, you know, that's thank yeah. God we have a bioinformatics specialist. In <laughs> yeah, thank goodness. <laughs> I know. They have a lot of work to do right now. <laughs> do you so, yeah, have so a exciting stuff? Yeah, and I think we're finding out more and more that what we already kind of knew. Moths are they're out there pollinating a lot of stuff. I mean, we've even found like some ag crops on there, like soybeans mm. and you know durum wheat and things like that. That you know. So it's yeah, not just the plants. They might be yeah. helping with, helping with agricultural production too. Mm-hmm. Right. Do you have a goal for NRRES right now other than just helping to add to the amount of research going on since there was such a big gap in that area? Is there a certain, certain aim you're going for? Yeah, I mean, I... I, I... Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we want to grow into, you know, a really well-established um, research organization with that, that would have, you know, staff, right? That we could, mm. we could, you know, we could have some full-time people that were doing not just moth research. Um, and this is where I talk to Marion a lot, too, of like, you know, she's got such a broad interest in other insects that, mm. you know, eventually we could you know, do more research on, on non-moth stuff to mm-hmm. do, whether it be your, you know, the the lightning bugs, you know, whatever, or, you know, some of these ants, things like that. But we want to, yeah, we want to grow into a, a, an established organization that, that not only produces, like, quality research mm-hmm. in terms of publication and stuff, but also outreach. You know, that's the mm-hmm. other thing we want to get more into um, is is providing more um, sort of education-based programs. Um, Great. So what would it take to get there? What kind of resources do you need? Well, it's all about the money. Right. <laughs> <laughs> all about the funding. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it really is, you know, and, and we, you know, we've got some, we've got some momentum going on, you know, we've, we've, we're trying to work with the BLM and stuff, but I think, you know, grassroots organizations, especially research-oriented organizations, I feel like, 
the education-based initiatives are really attractive to donors and, and you know people and, and it's a little harder to convince them about research um, and why that's important mm -hmm. um, but it, it, it's just going to require us to continue to just you know make connections build relationships mm -hmm. um, because I think I think in grassroots organizations like that are just really about the individuals um, that that you know you meet and that you build relationships with that are um, interested in what you're doing that are willing to donate a little bit here and there. Um, you know, I mean, I, contract work like with the MPG and some of the agencies and stuff. I mean, that's that's all great stuff. Um, but I think for us to eventually, you know, build a very sustainable organization that we have the vision for it's going to require a really really broad donor base of individuals mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is it where it's going to be i think well it absolutely has value so <laughs> good thoughts yeah let's find Hopefully. find that big fish for you yeah maybe we can make some connections for you yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. So, um, Marion told us that you are what she called a field fanatic, right? <laughs> and that you travel all over the state just nonstop in the summer. And that that meant you had some pretty incredible and crazy experiences. Um, she wouldn't tell us anything more other than the one time you rolled back up to the station wild eyed, as she said, with the car on like on its last leg, smoking and steaming behind you and that you were just like. It's been a day. <laughs> so you want to tell us the story? <laughs> uh, well, you know, she's right. I'm, I'm a glutton for punishment. There's no doubt about that. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, these, these collecting trips we take, and that one in particular, I think it was a, it was a three-day binge where I basically left from Lolo, and I drove to the Muscle Shell Breaks area in Muscle Shell County, and mm -hmm. then, you know, I, I don't know where, near east of Lewistown somewhere. And <laughs> about how far is that? Uh, Lewistown, that's probably about a three and a half, four hour drive from here. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe a little longer. Um, and so then, you know, I, I tried to time it to where I got to where I was kind of going about, I don't know, maybe like, four o'clock, found this area, set up the light sheet, um, and then set up my traps. And that particular night, it was, um, I remember the micro moths were really, really good. And so I don't know if Marion mentioned that we, you know, we also collect all these micro moths and we send them to the California Academy of Sciences. Mm -hmm. So the, the micro moths were really good that night, I remember. And I, I, I do some field pinning, you know, in these boxes and that's where I send and I remember looking at the clock and it was like, geez, it was like 2.30 or something in the morning. And I'm like, you know, I'm like, geez, well, I got to collect, you know, I got to shut my traps down at like 4 or whatever, 4.30. So I'm like, oh, I'm just going to keep going, right? So <laughs> I kept going, you know, collected the traps and then packed all the moths up, did that. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll just drive to my next site, which was a Terry <laughs> Badlands, which is like, you know, another four hours away over by Terry. Sure, Montana, why not? Right? Yeah. So basically I was going off of like, by the time I made it to Terry, I, I had been awake for like over 30 hours. <laughs> well, in between going from the muscle shell to Terry, I was driving and I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm east of circle or wherever. And I'm like, oh man, I'm just gawking off at all the, you know, beautiful geology and everything. And I look up and 
this enormous bird, and I guess it had to have been a sage grouse or something, mm. flew like right in front of me and hit my <laughs> hit my windshield, spidered my windshield. Oh. I, off the road, yeah, I'm, oh my god, you know, and I'm like, oh, so I, you know, I try to go back, <laughs> no. and then I, 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 the bird's gone, and I'm like, oh, you know, 30 hours awake, and so I finally make it to Terry, and I get the camp set up, and I sleep, and then, you know, I go out to the Terry Badlands that night, do my stuff, and then I had to meet Mary in the next day in Billings. <laughs> oh so my gosh! I think I feel like I'm missing somewhere in between there. <laughs> but yeah, I show up, and then. On my way to from Terry to Billings, I stop at a rest area, and I go into the bathroom and I come out and I just my car is just steaming. Right? <laughs> like, I'm like, oh my god, what's going on? So I open the hood and it's like, it's not the radiator, but it's like something in the back of the engine that's oh, like no. leaking fluid and hitting the engine. I'm like, oh my god, what am I gonna do? You know? So, so what do I do? I get out the duct tape. <laughs> I get out the duct tape, I let it cool off, and I I try to, you know, I tape it up, and (laughs) so then I'm driving, it's like 85 degrees, 90 degrees, right, and so I'm I'm driving down the road with the heater full blast, with the windows (laughs) open, and I get the Marion's, and it's steaming again. (laughs) So then, you know, I'm like, well, how am I going to get back to Missoula here? I said, well, you know that, turning the heater on, running the heat seemed to help, it went into so before we leave Marion's, you know, I put more duct tape on it and drive the whole way to Missoula, the five-hour drive. Oh, my God. <laughs> so it, it's, it's been some adventures, you know. I I think this summer I put on maybe, oh, I could tally them up, but it's probably at least 5,000 miles. Uh-huh. Wow. You know, traveling around. Yeah. You know, one of the trips I took was... At the end of June, it was about 1,800 miles in itself. Wow. Oh, my God. So it went from here to south of Chinook and then up to north of Glasgow and then over to Medicine Lake and then up to the Canadian border north of Haver and then back to... And that was all in six days. And so, you know, it's a lot of um, just going from one place to the next. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's been an absolute blast, and I say I've, I've been in Montana my whole life, and I've seen country that I didn't even have a clue was out there. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's been it's been pretty fun, and then huh. you know, then there's always the you know, like in the in the uh, the upper Missouri breaks. And this year it seemed like everywhere I went, it rained, and it was like literally like wherever I was at. <laughs> The rain cloud like, just fouled you. Yeah. I too much away, but it was like, hey, where am I? You know, and so you always get into the gumbo things, you know, with the Missouri breaks. Am I even going to be able to get out of here? You know, mm-hmm. like. Yeah. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, some of that bentonite stuff, it's like, oh my God. Oh, you know? yeah. You get stuck so easily. Yeah. Oh, oh man. So there's been some rodeos that way, but, uh, but it's been a blast. Okay. And I, I feel fortunate to be able to do that. Um, and we're we're up to I think Mary and Frank told you like forty some counties now, so we got mm-hmm. a ways to go. But um, yeah, turning up a lot of great stuff. Awesome! It sounds like y'all are doing such great work. I mean, especially for the amount of people you have, I'm, I'm so impressed. <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, yeah, basically just Marion and I. Yeah. Um, aside from Chuck, and I hope Marion, I'm mm-hmm. sure she did mm-hmm. give kudos to Chuck and our partners down there because. I always feel like, although Chuck really, he loves the pinning and all that, but 
I often joke, we get to do the easy part, you know, we just get to go out and collect these things and then yeah. send them to Chuck. <clears throat> but, you know, just going back to the climate change thing too, and I'm sure Marion probably hit on it, is like, you know, building this collection and having this research collection is, is going to be really valuable in the future that maybe, you know, 25, 50, 100 years down the road, having this collection then, people could go back and replicate our surveys. Mm-hmm. Right, and then and then compare it to what we found in 2022, and obviously we're, and that's the hard part about knowing how the moths are being affected by climate change because we just we don't have the historical data. Right. Yeah. We don't know. I mean, there are some historical data from years and years ago, but we just we don't have that solid baseline to know what it was then to what it is now, and so yeah. That's kind of one of, you know, one of our goals is just, yeah, we want to create that baseline now, even though we're in the midst of it, that maybe, you know, right. 50 years down the road or whatever, they can look back and you know, replicate these surveys and then compare. Um, I just read a really cool study about them using museum specimens in the, you know, I think it was in the UK or somewhere there, where they actually found that the body sizes, so these bees were getting smaller. So they looked at like this, you know, these vouchers from a hundred years ago to the vouchers now, and they, I, I believe it was body size that they were showing that these bees were getting smaller. Wow, a hundred years. <laughs> yeah, so huh. they had this really complete collection from a yeah. hundred years ago, and then they went out and kind of did what I'm saying, they replicated. Yeah, these, yeah, yeah, I don't wish you could do that with your moths now. Right. It was oh. really interesting. Yeah. And the only way you get to that is having these vouchers. Yeah, like you have you, to start you know, somewhere. There's some sensitivity these days about collecting and, and things like that, but it, you, the only way you're gonna get to some of that data is is through these these collections like mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, yeah. Yeah, I'm just helping the future scientists. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. Um, well, we always like to conclude our podcast with uh, some some action items for our listeners. So what are some things our listeners can do to get involved with your research, if they can help with volunteering, or if you have any community science projects coming up or events they can get involved with or ways they can get involved with MPG Ranch? Because now that we've got them hooked on moth mania, what do we want them to do? Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, you know, I would I would say the first thing they could do is, is reach out to Marion. You know, she's especially if you're in the eastern part of the state, you know, reach out to Marion or email us at you know, go to our website and email mm-hmm. us at the info address. And, and just ask us, you know, what, what's going on. I mean I, I think that I, Mary and I are both just super willing to like spread our passion for moths and if people are interested in like wanting to learn oh how do I learn how to photograph a moth or you know what are the what, how do I build a moth trap or whatever we're yeah we just love to work one-on-one <laughs> with you um so just you know don't feel free to just email us um uh, send us a message and Great, we'll, we'll definitely you know respond back to you um, and Marion you know she's got the projects and billions with the the Audubon Center and uh, Zoo Montana she was there this year and and we're planning on you know doing some more events like that um, especially like during National Moth Week in the summer mm-hmm. it's always I think the last week of July um, you know, and if, and if listeners are interested in, hey, how do I do a, you know, a, an event for National Moth Week or whatever, we're more than happy to, like, 
you know, help you get set up with the equipment you'd need or anything like that. Um, so just reach out to us. Um, you know, we're, we just love to spread the message. Um, <laughs> the, other, the other thing is, is if you're, you know, if, if, if you like to take photographs and if you're on iNaturalist, I know a lot of people are using these databases and stuff. So we actually have a Montana Moth Project specific project on iNaturalist. Ooh. And we're, we're, you know, if you just get on iNaturalist and you have an account and just, you know, search Montana Moth Project, we would love um, for people to submit their observations to that because mm-hmm. we're, we're really looking to that as a way to supplement this these collections that we're doing. You know, eventually we're going to take that data and look to, you know, fill in gaps in distribution or whatever. But we also, if somebody has like a super interesting like observation that we don't have necessarily seen or whatever, mm-hmm. that really helps us communicate with that person about, hey, where was this location or what plant was it on and stuff. So we may yeah. be able to like go reach out and work with them um, to actually physically come out and right. maybe, you know, cool. For them and, and collecting stuff, so I really encourage people to to check out that if you if they have time. Yeah, it's know, really easy to do too. These days, right? And you're taking pictures. That would be very very helpful um, okay. for us. And then other than that, you know, I, I would just I suggest planting native plants. Mm-hmm. Big time. You know, mm-hmm. you've got a backyard, there and you, you want to, you know, maybe not water your lawn so much. You know, mm-hmm. find some, you know, find a, a native plant. Um, person and just throw out some seeds um see if you can if you can do that uh, whether it's the you know the forbs or the shrubs or whatever it might be um that's going to go a long ways in, in helping the moths it's all about the plants with the moths you know mm-hmm. they they eat plants and so if the more that we can promote the native native vegetation it's going to it's going to help the moths for sure i love that yeah, excellent. That's perfect. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, you know, yeah, definitely include that. And, you know, we have a, I'd encourage people too to, if you go to the website to, you know, sign up for our mailing list. Okay. Uh, we do try to send out fairly regular, um, you know, email updates. And, you know, we've got a, an annual newsletter that we'll be putting out here in a couple of weeks um, that sort of sums up the, the year of research. Um, and just keep people in the loop a little bit. Yeah, and we also have a Facebook page if people are interested in that. They yeah, can keep you bet. Us on as well. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you, Matt, so much for sharing this with us today. We have a lot to go off of from here. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you guys having me, and um, I'll look forward to hearing uh, hearing what the final part is <laughs> like. I hope I didn't ramble too much. <laughs> This is awesome. This is so much fun. Yeah, it's great. Thank you so much. Yes. Well, have a good day. Have good luck up in the snow up there. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's starting to let up now. But okay, uh, good. Yeah, this was fun. I appreciate it. Cool. Thank you. (laughs) Bye bye. Bye. See you. Well, folks, there was a lot there. We hope you learned something from this or it sparked new questions or ideas. Please check out NRRES or MBG Ranch to get involved, plant wildflowers, and come out mothing with us sometime. If you have ideas for topics for future episodes or questions about this episode, please email us at podcast at yellowstonewildlife.org. The Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem is a production of the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary in Red Lodge, Montana. If you would like to support them this holiday season and this podcast, or learn more about the Yellowstone Wildlife Sanctuary, please visit their website, yellowstonewildlifesanctuary.org. 
Our hosts today are Eden Wandra and Jess Smallwood. Our theme music was written and performed by local musician Justin Satterfield and recorded by Sean Keeney. We hope you'll join us next time for another episode of Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem.